I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Round Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Ram Podcast for June 19th, 2009, and we look a little bit at the idea of the seven masters and focus on Nagarjuna. Uh, we had a question on our uh, Dharma Ram Facebook page asking us to talk a little bit about the uh, seven masters in the Jodo Shinshu tradition. And so I'm really into the seven masters. I think it's really interesting. Um, other people maybe not so because it can seem overly technical depending on the approach, uh, but we thought we'd look into it a little bit and maybe focus more on the first one, who's Nagarjuna. So we're not going to be overly technical? Hmm? We're not going to be overly technical? Oh, no, we'll get, <laughs> we'll get in there. We'll dip into the, the technical... Um, all right. Jar. <laughs> <laughs> but we're starting with Nagarjuna. Yeah, well, we'll start first with just kind of looking at this idea of the seven masters. Uh, in the past, it was called the seven patriarchs mm-hmm. in English. Like, that's how they chose to, you know, as kind of these, like, leaders or whatever. But um, re- in recent years, I think they've switched over more seven masters. Because patriarch obviously implies that these are all men. Right. Well, they, are, they are. But <laughs> it almost implies, like, that's a part of important thing about them maybe or you know right um, but it also to me patriarch also sounds like it's um hereditary not hereditary but uh, uh, uh-huh. you know i am the patriarch and you know now you have patriarch and um like the pope for example mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um in one sense it could be because it is considered kind of a transmission right but these folks but, are separated oh, yeah, some yeah, of them yeah, are separated yeah. by centuries and yeah. oceans so it's not like an unbroken chain, like the like the Zen lineage, for example, which is assumed to be an unbroken chain. Mm-hmm. Back and this actually himself. was an issue um, for Honen. Honen was criticized for one of his list of five patriarchs mm-hmm. because they weren't connected. And he wasn't connected to his main one. He didn't receive the transmission face-to-face. Right. Well, we'll get into that later. <laughs> um, so... The seven patriarchs, or I'm sorry, seven masters, are are important, I think, in Jodo Shinshu. And we can see that because uh, in the Shoshinge, well, Kyogyo Shinsho, which is Shinran's magnum opus, um, is very much structured uh, looking at mainly these seven masters and then with other people added in. But each chapter, he says, well, let's look at the text, let's look at the sutras, then let's see what the commentators say. And invariably, it's the seven masters. Mm. And the Shoshinge has the similar structure. Shoshinge is uh, one of the main, most maybe the most important texts that we chant in Jodo Shinshu, although we don't chant it so much here in America, uh, but it's chanted each morning uh, at Nishihonganji. And uh, it includes, the whole second half is going through the seven masters. So, and, you know, uh, chanting about their contributions uh, to this path. So uh, I think just from that, we can see um, how important Shinran held them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so who are the seven masters? Yeah, we should probably talk about that first. Uh, two from India. Mm-hmm. So it's Nagarjuna and Vasubandhu are considered the two uh, masters from India. China, there's three. Uh, Tanluan, and then Daocho, and then Shandao. Mm-hmm. And then two from Japan. Is Genshin and Honen. 
with Shinran's teacher. Right. So these uh, seven people are, are held up by Shinran. And if you, some temples even here, uh, if you look at the, the Naijin, the, the kind of altar area, uh, sometimes if they have enough space, normally it's Amida in the middle, and if you're looking, on the right is Shinran, and on the left is Renyo. But sometimes uh, next to Shinran, further out will be uh, Shotoku Taishi, or Prince Shotoku, uh, from Japanese history. And on the left side, sometimes you'll see seven uh, a scroll with a painting of seven people uh, the palo alto temple has that hmm. that's the seven masters hmm. uh, so that um they're they're represented as um images of worship uh in within the naijin officially uh, from the honganji i'm seven. getting one of those yeah it's really neat they might have it at the bca <laughs> bookstore actually they have some neat um scrolls down there yeah yeah, yeah. um so one of the the um uh, one of the verses in the Shoshinge uh, says this, The masters of India and the West who explained the teaching and treatises and the eminent monks of China and Japan clarified the great sage Shakyamuni's true intent in appearing in the world and revealed that Amida's primal vow accords with the nature of beings. So that verse uh, opens up this section on the seven masters. So it's interesting to see this kind of uh, geographical and chronological Transmission from India to China to Japan. Uh, Shinran also has uh, some Korean masters that he quotes oh, in really? the Kyogyo Shinsho. Uh, so he quotes a lot of different people, uh, but these seven really become the um, the main ones. Uh, that that transmission aspect can be kind of problematic because it looks teleological. Ooh, fancy a technical word, word right? <laughs> um, it looks like there's this progression, mm-hmm. right? And so that. Obviously, culminating in Shinran, from our point of view, right? So that the teaching is passed on from India and then developed through China, developed in Japan. Honen is the 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 the, the last and maybe the best master, and then Shinran, and it culminates in Shinran, and then nothing can happen after that. Shinran is the end, kind of, and he has given us the true, pure, perfect teaching. So, so in that sense, some people have criticized this kind of view of the. Um, this this kind of transmission uh, culmination kind of view, but I don't know. I'm not too worried about it. It doesn't. It's not necessarily. Um, that that's not something that you have to um, assume out of this view. I think we can just see it as as this kind of uh, Shinran looking back at Buddhist history and finding uh, in these various people, various places, inspiration, uh, uh, inspiration, and, yeah. and the, the the Pure Land teachings there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because it doesn't seem to me like he's making the claim that he's the end of right, 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 the right, line. Right, right. <laughs> it, it, I think that's a, it's something read after right. by, by people looking, um, reading into Shinran, yeah. Um, so uh, we're going to start today with uh, Nagarjuna then. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, and, and maybe we'll have a whole series of these. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> I think over time uh, we'd like to view, review at least some of them. Yeah, yeah. But Nagarjuna is pretty important, not just uh, Nagarjuna is a, a familiar should be a familiar figure to uh, even our non Shinshu listeners. Yes, because yeah, he's yeah, yeah. an important figure in Buddhism more generally. Yeah, um, everyone claims him as their own. Yeah, <laughs> um, definitely the um, the Japanese schools of Buddhism all hold Nagarjuna as one of their founding masters, whether it's esoteric, right, or Zen, or you know, Pure Land or whatever, they all looked at Nagarjuna. So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> These schools may have very, very different monastic, uh, not monastic, uh, docu- uh, 
doctrinal, doctrinal views, yeah, yeah. Uh, very different practices, and yet they all look to the same guy. So um, Nagarjuna is sometimes held up as the second Buddha. Mm. Right? He's looked at as, um, after Shakyamuni, he's the one, I mean, this is a very Mahayana perspective, but you know, the guy that, that um, pulled, brought Mahayana out, kind of pulled it all together and, and really began uh, the, the, the uh, Mahayana tradition. So uh, he's, he's really important in the, the Mahayana, certainly, and also uh, uh, esoteric, yeah. esoteric lineages. Well, Shinran's interesting because um, he, he quotes, he refers to the, the Lankavatara Sutra as a, a prophecy that um, Shakyamuni is supposed to be prophesizing that Nagarjuna will appear. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what does uh, Shakyamuni say? Well, Shinran's version is that Shakyamuni Tathagata on Mount Lanka, referring to Lankavatara Sutra, uh, prophesied to the multitudes that in South India the Mahasattva Nagarjuna would appear in this world to crush the views of being and non-being. So to crush the views. Yeah, I mean this stuff is great. Yeah, That's why yeah, yeah. a lot of people don't like Shoshinghe, I think, or not that they don't <laughs> like it, but um, having to memorize it and it's all in you know this foreign language and just these kind of uh, nonsense sounds if you don't you know even if you do understand Japanese it's still you can't understand Shoshinge while you're chanting it because it's really Chinese yeah yeah but when you read it it's, it's got some really great stuff um, <laughs> so I've looked it up in um, Suzuki did a translation of the Lankavatara Sutra and it says that um, in the southern part of India, uh, a bhikshu most illustrious and distinguished will be born. His name is Nagavaya. He is the destroyer of the one-sided views based on being and non-being. Being. He will declare my vehicle, the unsurpassed Mahayana to the world. Attaining the stage of joy, he will go to the land of bliss. In this Mahayana Sutra, the Lankavatara Sutra. Um, just one couple wow. little verses in there. Um, and it doesn't say Nagarjuna, it says Nagavaya. It's got a different name. Uh-huh. Um, a monk with a name like Naga or something. So it's, you know. Open to interpretation. Yeah, you can totally interpret it in a lot of different <laughs> ways. A lot of people have, have looked at this, um, trying to understand who Nagarjuna was. Um, actually, Nagarjuna is pretty much lost in time. The, yeah. yeah. I, just to, to clarify, Nagarjuna is what, second century? We don't even know. Possibly. Yeah. Second century with a very large question mark yeah, and an asterisk. <laughs> late part of the second century, dying maybe in the, um, well, yeah, dying, actually second, third century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And nobody knows. I mean. Yeah. And this is really, really, really early, early Buddhist history then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and finding stuff, archaeologically speaking, in mm-hmm. that part of the world is from that from that long ago is, is is impossible. And a lot of the texts that refer to it were written like seventh century, eighth century, fourteenth yeah. century, <laughs> like really late, the histories of, of Nagarjuna. So so some scholars have tried to um, pull apart Nagarjuna's biography and who he was and where he was and what he did and it's really difficult, if not impossible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. Yeah. Um one thing that's interesting is that he is there early on in Mahayana. Yeah. Well, and Mahayana itself is also lost in the sands of history that, you know, there's all these new ideas about the beginning, the birth origins of Mahayana, and we don't know, uh, but that it was really diverse. Uh, but probably from 100 BCE mm-hmm. through 0, 100, that 200-year period, um, either side of the year zero, 
uh, is when Mahayana was beginning to bubble up. Right. Yeah. So sometime during or after that, uh, it seems like Nagarjuna was coming out and kind of codifying some of the ideas that were found right. there. Which is, I think, why he's so important to so many different kinds of particularly Mahayana Buddhism, because his ideas have become sort of the some of the cornerstones of mm-hmm. Mahayana philosophy more generally. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can look to him and say he was the one who talked or systematized or, you know, sort of explicated this idea of the two truths. He was the one who talked about uh, form as emptiness and emptiness as form and, you know, talked mm-hmm. about these ideas that we sort of, I think a lot of Buddhists take for granted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just, you know, yep. part of the tradition. Yeah. Thanks, um, Nagarjuna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, in, but it's I think, relevant to... Shinshu and to Pure Land Buddhism more generally because he does talk about Pure Land as well as these other issues. And apparently he was reborn there. Right, right. <laughs> In the land of bliss. Yes. Um, and so that's an issue that um, there are a lot of texts attributed to Nagarjuna. And uh, only a couple or maybe scholars generally only really accept one or two of those as probably being from the person that we think of as Nagarjuna. And so, who wrote these other texts? Was it somebody else? Was it attributed to him? Were there more than one Nagarjunas? Because apparently Nagarjuna is a common name in a certain area of India, even up till now, and that there have been people throughout history named Nagarjuna um, in various parts of India. Um, so do we need to consider that maybe there were more than one Nagarjunas? Um, or, you know, so there's, there's all these different issues. Um, the Mula Madhyamaka Karika is, I think, the main one that we think of with Nagarjuna. And that's really about emptiness, Mm -hmm. thought. Uh, Samsara is nirvana. Nirvana is samsara. Uh, Moving beyond uh, the kind of earlier ideas of... The earlier, like, uh, Sarvastivadins and and some of those North Indian groups that were pre-Mahayana were breaking reality down to its constituent elements. But they considered that those constituent elements somehow existed. We can break it down to these, and then um, that's how we can see the reality as it truly is. And then Garjana goes further and says, no, even those, they don't exist. They're empty. They're, they're, it's not that they not exist either, but that, that there's, there's nothing inherently existent about these, these atoms or dharmas with mm-hmm. a small d, these constituent elements of reality. Um, and so really moving towards an emptiness uh, view right. and preaching that, that text. Yeah. Very difficult text to read. Have you wrestled with it yourself? I've tried here and there. I mean, it's hard. It's it's pretty long. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's verse form. Um, I mean, there's, there's some people will just say nobody knows what he meant. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, that helps sometimes too. You're like, yeah. okay, so wrestle with it as best you can. You know. Well, um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I at the same time, I sort of think that some of this stuff. I, I often think that we approach it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I mean, this idea that you can sit down with a text and analyze it mm-hmm. um, is a very sort of Western way to look at reading religious texts, right? You sit down with a text, you explicate it, mm-hmm. you figure out what the words mean, you relate them to other passages, you know, do this sort of analytical thing. And I, I think that that's probably not the way it was done mm-hmm. in, a, in a strictly historical Buddhist context. I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, you would recite the text, first of all, mm-hmm. you would chant it. You wouldn't read it in an analytical way. And then you would debate about it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this whole long history in Buddhism of Buddhist debate where the monks would get together and they would argue about what things meant. Mm-hmm. 
right? Which I think is a much different way of approaching these ideas than sort of locked in your library. (laughs) And that tradition is still held up in Tibetan Buddhism of of the debate, which is really neat. Um, And yeah, it has that recitative aspect where the teacher recites, is reciting the text and then expounding on it. And then, yeah. Right, and then somebody comes up with a sort of programmatic response to it and saying, no, 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 it means this. And then the teacher says, no, 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 it means that. And they go back and forth. And I think that's how you wrestle with it, maybe. If you get, yeah, yeah, the tr- traditional way, which yeah. has merit and uh, is, is a different approach than right. just sitting down to try and read. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. So, you know, emptiness is, is um, huge. And it's connected to Pratitya Samutpada, the dependent co-origination, a Mahayana view of that. Mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily the same as as um, uh, what you might get from a Theravada source or, or the Pali canon, uh, may have these different emphases on what Pratitya Samudpada is saying, uh, what dependent co-origination is all about. Um, but that that emptiness side, I don't know, in Jodo Shinshi, we don't talk about it that much. Other forms of Mahayana Buddhism, they talk about it a lot. A lot. Right? <laughs> Zen is, I mean, that's very much the wisdom side to me, right? That... Um, uh, Emptiness, uh, shunyata would be the, the Sanskrit word, and and um, trying to either awaken to that, touch that, have some insight into that, some satori, uh, right? And and if you can touch that wisdom, that that uh, awakening to emptiness, then you've got some kind of high level attainment there. Yeah, good yeah. thing, and that will transform who you are. It will transform how you. Um, engage in the world, right? Jodo Shinshu, wisdom side is very much not dealt with in a way. It's almost like the wisdom side is on Amida's side. In mm. my just in my general impression, right? That Amida as the Buddha of uh, inconceivable light. That inconceivable light is, is the wisdom. light of wisdom. Yeah. yeah, but it's inconceivable. Right? They're in the name. It's beyond rational thought is beyond something it's not something that you can sit down and think about and right. attain some kind of intellectual understanding it, it transcends that uh, and kind of understood to be beyond our ability to to uh, to really uh, awaken to that's I think by your own effort but yeah that that's that's the important thing right of course mm-hmm. but I think that that sentiment of awakening to that inconceivable wisdom is has some relationship to Nagarjuna and his understanding of the two truths, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of the two truths is that there's the sort of mundane truth that that really has to do with the language that we use here in the unenlightened realm of, of samsara and how we talk about, you know, labeling things or whatnot versus the ultimate truth, mm-hmm. which is beyond language. Mm-hmm. And we can't talk about the ultimate truth because it's beyond language. Mm-hmm. So... That seems like a relationship there, right? Interesting. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like if the the wisdom of Amida is inconceivable, well, of course it is because that's the ultimate truth, which is beyond language. You can't mm-hmm. talk about it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with your reasoned, analytical, intellectual mind. Mm-hmm. You can experience it and have that insight, uh, you know, insight into the nature of reality. But once you start trying to explain that, particularly to unenlightened beings, mm-hmm. you necessarily slip out of enlightened language and ultimately use the language of the other truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet there's a lot written about 
about it. <laughs> of course. It's inconceivable, but <laughs> beyond language, and yet a lot of the sutras. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Shurangama Sutra, yeah, or you yeah. know, the, um, some of the wisdom Prajnaparamita Sutras are talking about. That's all, yeah, that's uh, all they're talking about, right? Yeah, the, yeah. Or the, um, the Flower Adornment Sutra. Mm-hmm. So, um, and part of that idea of the conventional truth is that uh, there is truth there. That language right. can point us in the right direction. Because one way to say it's beyond language. Language is inherently false. Language cannot take us to that. Right. But I don't, that's, I don't think that's what we're right. saying at all. Right. Because it's, it's the two truths that, right, here. Right. I, think we, I think often when we think about the two truths, we assume that the ultimate truth is the real truth and then the other conventional truth isn't really true. Right. But it's still a truth. Right. It's saying that language can. <laughs> there is some language that can uh, uh, lead us in the right. right direction. Yeah. 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 Um, so a lot of the, the Parajyaparamita literature, the emptiness kind of talk, it's, it's like Zen koans, where it's, co- it's a contradiction, it's a paradox, because language ultimately can't express it. That, that something has to happen that, that kind of shoots you out mm-hmm. into, um, uh, towards that. It's not, you know. The interesting thing with Shinran is that I think that uh, for Shinran, the only language that is true is Namo Amida Butsu, the name, and that that is uh, true reality, inconceivable reality, uh, manifesting in a way f- for us. And that the name becomes, that's why the name is sometimes used as the object of worship, because it was mm. so important uh, for Shinran. And so, so um, again, language is there. And he says, like in Tani Show or something, he says somewhere about, um, all things in this world are false. Only the Nembutsu is true. So, you know, in that sense, kind of, negating our access to conventional truth maybe that 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 even if we had words it's impossible for us to attain awakening on our own to attain access to this uh, perfect wisdom uh, and that, that but that wisdom manifests to us compassionately via namo amidabutsu hmm. so it, it to, so shinran is interesting because he mentions that the, to crush the views of being and non-being Right. So he's aware. I mean, he's taking it from Lankavatara Sutra because it's in there. But but I like that because you know, u and mu. Yeah. Right. U being um, existence, and then mu being non-existence. But emptiness actually sometimes emptiness is shunyata has been translated as nothingness, but that's which wrong. implies a negation. But that's wrong <laughs> because negation is also negated. Yeah. Mu is also wrong. Um, so yeah, there's that famous thing that Agarjan does where it's uh, x and not x, but x and x and not X and not X or something like that. It's some like... Tetralimiton or something. Yeah, it's some like crazy (laughs) Indian logical formula that, you know, when you read it, it sort of blows your mind because everything is and everything isn't. Mm -hmm. And the opposite of everything is and the opposite of everything isn't. Like, what? (laughs) So I I like that because it's it's important to remember that it's not about negation. It's not nothingness. Right. Uh, It's not negating all things. And Nagarjuna is crushing the views of... Yes, he's crushing those. (laughs) Consider them crushed. <laughs> um, I think it's important to um, to uh, then go on and realize that the texts that Shinran holds as being by or the text uh, by Nagarjuna uh, is uh, the discourse on the ten stages, uh, and so it's right. this Chinese text, the Jujubi Basharon in in um, Japanese reading of the Chinese title. Uh, and within that long text that's a discourse on probably flower garland kind of stuff, there's mm-hmm. ten stages and... Um, and the ten stages of becoming a bodhisattva on your way towards enlightenment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
so within there, there's a chapter called uh, the chapter on easy practice. And that's that chapter on easy practice, and even within that chapter are the important parts for Jodo Shinshu. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's basically someone asking, uh, isn't there, you know, uh, I want to become a bodhisattva, but isn't there some kind of like easy way to do it? Slacker. Yeah, I love this. So Nagarjuna responds, <laughs> your remarks are those of a weak and cowardly man without great aspiration. They are not the words of a man of courage and determination. The reason I say this is that if a man makes a vow in his desire to reach the highest perfect bodhi, he should, until he enters the stage of non-retrogression, exert himself day and night without regard for his life as if to put out a fire on his head. So very much, I love it, Mahayana yeah. language and that, that, that metaphor of, you know, there's a fire on your head, the, the amount of effort you would put in to put that out is how you should be a, striving for awakening. And he says, you say that this stage of non-retrogression is extremely difficult to enter, um, et cetera, et cetera, and ask if there's an easy path. Uh, These are the words of a cowardly and contemptible man, not those of a brave man with strong aspiration. If, however, you insist on hearing from me about this method of practice, I will explain it to you. (laughs) Gee, thanks. (laughs) Uh, This is from Inagaki Sensei's translation of that, and we'll have the references um, uh, at the, the website. So, it's that there's a difficult path and then an easy path. Right. The difficult path is like walking over land, and the easy path is like w- traveling on a waterway in a boat. And this uh, easy path is, uh, if someone is mindful of me, it's the vow. It's a rephrase of the vow. It's really interesting. Uh, if someone is mindful of me, utters my name, and takes refuge... He will immediately reach the certainly assured state and will attain the highest perfect enlightenment. For this reason, think of Amida Buddha always. Right. And and just to, to put that in some context, when you say that you reach the stage of the most assuredly, I can't remember what you just uh, said. The rightly but, assured state. Which is yeah, the yeah. stage of non-retrogression, which yeah. on the Bodhisattva path is that stage the Bodhisattva reaches, at which point they are not going to slip back. Like... In the however many steps before that stage, at any one of those moments, you might screw up and have to start over again. Mm-hmm. But once you reach that stage, you're done. Like you've already, you're not going to have to go back and start all over again, which is relevant because what Nagarjuna is saying is that if you take refuge in, in Amida Buddha, you will attain that stage mm-hmm. without doing all the other hard practices of putting out a fire on your head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting because in that paraphrase of the vow, it doesn't only say, be mindful of me, it says, utter my name. It's like in the text, and this is early, this is like, um, uh, I think probably, what, third, second, third, fourth century? Uh, and so it has this idea of saying the name. Because mm-hmm. there's an issue there of, of in, in the larger sutra itself, it says, think of me ten times, which then later gets interpreted as, say my name ten times. Right. But here in this paraphrase, it's, it's explicit of reciting the name. So this idea of reciting the name comes up in this text a lot. So um, that's, that's an area that's interesting to me, is this development of this idea of recitation of Buddha's names. Um, but yeah, so, so those are the two main ideas that Shinran takes from Nagarjuna, is this uh, easy path but then also that rightly assured state uh, 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 of non-retrogression. The stage of non-retrogression. Yeah. 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 
And I think it, it probably bears some repeating or mention anyway that part of Shinran's context when he was alive was the assumption that they were living in the age of Mapo mm -hmm. and that becoming enlightened was extremely difficult and there was all kinds of this, this fear of the false dharma and the declining age of the dharma and all of this. Um, and so that to me helps answer the question that I always, the first question that comes to me whenever I hear about this is, well, if there's an easy path, why not take it? <laughs> you know, what's the virtue of doing the hard path if you're going to end up in the same place anyway? Um, and I think that the virtue for, for Shinran in his time was this fear of, oh, well, it's impossible to become enlightened mm -hmm. on the hard path. We have to use the easy path. And that comes also from his own experience right. as a monk for 20 years and then rejecting that. Yeah, and, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that we should point out is that uh, scholars probably will not, do not accept the Juju Bibasharon uh, as written by the Nagarjuna that wrote the Mula Madhyamika Karika. Um, and yeah, but what do they know? It may actually be written by Kumara Jiva, <laughs> uh -huh. who translated it. Uh, he was a great translator in China. Uh, and that it reads more as a commentary by him than as an actual translation of an actual text written by Nagarjuna. Um, so that's sometimes an issue to me, for me personally, um, has been, you know, well, then how do we, you know, I would look to uh, Shinshu writers and looking for how do they scholastically argue for Shin, uh, Nagarjuna as a Pure Land follower. And personally, I've never really seen a, um, a, a, a um, what do you call it, an argument that I felt was really convincing. Uh, it, it's almost more that, you know, well, it's it, that the the Mule Madhyamika Karika, that those stanzas on emptiness are very much a scholarly treatise, but that monks did practices as well, and so Nagarjuna may have been doing pure land practice at the same time that he was uh, contemplating lofty, uh, sure, uh, schol scholarly ideas of emptiness, and yeah. uh, and that there almost certainly was, yeah, yeah. Whether they were doing pure land practice, I don't know. Um, but the yeah, tradition, they, it, within the tradition, it's kind of... Um, and they probably were, I mean, and he wasn't doing Pirland practice in the sense that we would recognize it today. Right, right, right. And then it was this much earlier Indian, yeah. uh, early days of, of Pirland practice, perhaps. Yeah. He also wrote a text called Junirai, uh, 12 mm -hmm. stanzas on, um, or 12 bowings, kind of, right? 12 verses on uh, praising Amida Buddha. And it's kind of interesting because um, it's in the Jodo Shinshu Honganjiha Sutra book. Uh, they used to chant it a lot here in BCA, maybe not so much anymore. It has a very melodic uh, kind of melody, which uh, as opposed to the straight um, chanting that we normally do, the monotone kind of chanting. Uh, but some people don't like it. It's not included in the official collection of Shinshu texts um, that were published uh, before World War II that are still in use today, the Shinshu Shogyo Zensho, because... I don't know. It's, it, I don't know why. It's interesting. It has this kind of liminal status as a text um, that is not important doctrinally. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not in there. It's not in the collection of texts, and yet it's in the official chanting book. Hmm. Uh, I think some ministers don't like to use it because it's technically not a sutra, hmm. right? Jusege uh, Sambutsuge are from the larger sutra. Amida Kyo is is uh, the smaller Amida Sutra. Shoshinge. Not a sutra, Not a sutra but, but it's Shinran. It's Shinran. So in that sense, it's elevated to sutra status. 
Uh, we do chant other stuff though, from like uh, Shandao. Sure. Or, sure. Um, so so it has this kind of liminal status of this this um, this kind of like borderline kind of uh, whether people use it or not. Uh, the Junirai, these praises of Amida. Hmm. So I don't know. Nagarjuna is interesting character, interesting figure. There's just uh, you can just delve into Nagarjuna studies. Uh, there's a really interesting book um, that we'll have posted, uh, written recently. Uh, about you know a- another look at Nagarjuna, trying to place him uh, in the context uh, as these new studies are coming out of the early days of Mahayana and the kind of role that he played there. Um, even though I don't try to awaken to emptiness on my own, I think it's it's really interesting stuff to to grapple with for a while now yeah, and again, yeah, yeah. and it's important I think. Uh, to be familiar with at least sure. to have, have had exposure to this kind of emptiness thought. And I think yeah. it, clearly it's it's part of Shinran's own thinking too or part of his not as part of his thinking so much but part of his uh, intellectual background. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's 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 in there. I think it's part of the larger tradition so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if it's not foregrounded or central it's still a part of things that we should know. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. and, and wrestle with. I mean it's it's good stuff and Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there are these other masters, too. Vasubandhu is another uh, really important one for this tradition, uh, important in the Mahayana tradition as well. Uh, we can't get to them today. Uh, the Chinese masters are very interesting and have some interesting uh, interpretations, interesting innovations, perhaps. Uh, and uh, at some point, maybe in the future, we'll get to those as well, as well as um, Genshin is fascinating. Love Genshin. Yeah. And um, <laughs> uh, Honen, of course. So... Stay tuned for uh, later installments uh, looking at the seven masters of Jodo Shinshu. Mm-hmm.